Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year? 1997. And Amy, what the fuck are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing? Recording a podcast. Get out. Shut the door. The movie? Boogie Nights. Everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson, and I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we are trying to find the hundred best movies of all time. And when we do, we are sending them into outer space. We are in the middle of our contender series, where we are looking at current Oscar nominees and checking out some of their past work. Uh, today on the show, we're talking about Boogie Nights. But before we get into that, Amy, still getting so much feedback. On The Shining, everyone is sending in their own theories. Uh, people are uh, agreeing with us, disagreeing with us. And I will tell you this. After we spoke, I went and watched Room 237, and I absolutely loved that movie. I had never seen it, <laughs> um, and I had heard so much about it. And I think what was so amazing to me was the way that that director uses Kubrick footage and other film footage never shows the people that are being interviewed, you just kind of hear them as voiceover the entire film. And it paints these incredibly elaborate pictures. It, it really is. And I know it's an overused term, but it has like a, a very trippy feeling to it because you're watching, you know, other works of Kubrick as people are talking about the shining and their experience watching it. But it, I don't know. It, it's really, really well done. If you've not seen Room 237, it actually scared June watching it. She made me turn really? it off. Yeah, because I think, you know, the the slow pans, the slow pushes, the just the monotone nature of the dock, I think, lets you live in those scenes a little bit longer. And I think it it makes the creep factor a little bit higher. I mean, it does make you feel like you're living in the afterlife. Like mm. pacing around, hearing voices in your head. 
I love what filmmakers have been doing with The Shining, just using it as like a text for making their own crazy things. Like, have you ever seen um, The Shining backwards and forwards where they layer the the final frame over the beginning frame and they just play the two layers wow, of the movie on top no. of each other? It's really trippy. When, um, when I went to the very first uh, Overlook Film Festival, you know, the film festival yes. we love quite deeply. Um, they had it at one of the Shining hotels and one of the hotel room channels was just set to play like the Shining backwards and forwards the whole time. And you really see like how symmetrical it is. And of course, people are like, whoa, I'm getting toked and like seeing all these like crazy symbols in here that I know were deliberate. And you're like, they weren't, but I love that we're just doing this. We should do it with all films. What if we did the Titanic backward and forward? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves there. I mean, the end of the Titanic is pretty different than the beginning. I mean, that's like you're going to be watching a boat crash, but maybe you're looking at a relationship doomed from the very beginning. Maybe that's what you're seeing. I mean, I guess or you're question- looking at a movie about the afterlife and love continuing oh, on. Oh, I love that. Uh, my question is this. This really seems to have, you know, uh, ramped up. In the last 20 years, uh, you know, this kind of dissection of The Shining and, and maybe even more since Room 237, what do you think Kubrick would think of this? Like, I couldn't quite put my finger on, would he be amused or irritated? Because, you know, a lot of people are putting so much meaning into every one of his choices that maybe on some level it's diluting the movie because people are reading their own thing into it. Or is that something that he would welcome? I think he'd be happy that people are quietly thinking about it. I think he'd be irritated to have people publicly making their own art about it. I think he'd be rolling his eyes and then rolling his eyes again and then rolling them like 99 more times to make sure we understand the perfect eye roll that he is giving these projects. But I appreciate that he is open to to mystery. I mean, if you're going to be a guy who makes cryptic films, you have to be open to cryptic interpretations. And I think it would make him happy that people are at least thinking about it, even if he was like, all these people are dumb. Do you think it's the film that he has made that probably has the longest lasting legacy? Like as far as from a popular standpoint, obviously 2001 is a giant film that affected so much of filmmaking. But just on the level of when people... Hear the name Kubrick. Do you think The Shining is what they think of? Oh, gosh. I don't know. In a way, I want to say that Dr. Strangelove has the longest influence because I think satirists are always trying to top it. You know, something we Mm. touched on a little bit last week when we were talking about Adam McKay and Talladega Nights. Yeah. But then would we have any of our space movies without something as landmark as 2001? Or was he just a guy like, was he like a farmer surveying the cinematic landscape and planting different types of plants so that like his seeds could grow into all of these different genres. Well, I mean, here's what I'll say. If you're talking about Christopher Nolan, we talked about him in our Batman episode, this idea that the Dark Knight probably is going to be the film that defines Christopher Nolan more than any other film, because I think that's the movie that most people were exposed to as a Christopher Nolan film. That's true. Although the people who've been exposed to most, as we've seen doing the show, have written to us and been like, honestly, my favorite one is either the Memento or Prestige. So I feel like real Nolan heads go for those two. But the right, public but I'm at talking large, about yeah, the public at right, large. Right, and the public at large. The public at large. I mean, I don't know if I like to use my mother as an example for things. I don't know if my mother's even heard of Memento, but she's probably heard of The Dark Knight. And she probably heard of The Shining. I mean, it's just interesting what the legacy becomes in pop culture versus not even the legacy of what was the best. 
Exactly. That's why I love what we're doing. Going yes. back and looking at things from their time and trying to put them in their right place. And that's why I think today's discussion is going to be really interesting because Boogie Nights is a film that puts PTA on the map. Uh, he did a film called Hard Eight before this, which uh, was, I think, akin to Memento, although I think Memento way more successful, but it was a smaller movie. Uh, and clearly, I think if you read enough about PTA, uh, he will tell you that he did not have final cut of Heart Eight. Uh, he was kicked out of the editing room there. So it wasn't really even a full Paul Thomas Anderson film. This is the first full realized PTA film, uh, I think. And I'm so excited to talk to you about it. And I guess uh, let's unzip our flies and unspool it. The year is 1997. 1.5 billion people watch the televised funeral for Princess Diana. Madeleine Albright becomes the first female Secretary of State in U.S. history. The bodies of 39 cult members of Heaven's Gate were discovered after they died by suicide in the hopes of hopping on a spaceship following the Hale-Bopp comet. And the first book in the Harry Potter series is published. Audiences are watching a lot of movies that we've done here on the show. Titanic, Men in Black, Contact, Eve's Bayou, and today's film, Boogie Nights. Amy, it's a big cast. Who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio? Boogie Nights. It is, of course, written and directed by PTA. And a fun fact about Hard Eight, it actually comes out the same year as Boogie Nights because of like the Sundance whole premiere schedule. Premiered in Sundance in 96, but didn't actually come out till February of 97. Same as Boogie. Big year for PTA. But this movie is the six-year saga of a dozen friends who shoot porn movies together in the Valley in the late 70s and early 80s under the direction of Burt Reynolds's Jack Horner. Jack's new discovery is Eddie Adams. He's a teenager played by Mark Wahlberg, who gives himself the new name, Dirk Diggler. Now, Dirk's biological home life that we see of it in Torrance is not great. Like, but his adopted family that he finds here in Jack's house is great for a while. It's made up of Julianne Moore as the maternal Amber Waves, Heather Graham as the roller girl, John C. Riley as his best bud Reed Rothschild, Don Cheadle as Buck Swope, and Nicole Ari Parker as Becky Barnett. Those are all the actors he works with and behind the scenes. There's boom mic operator Philip Seymour Hoffman as Scotty J, Ricky J as cinematographer Kurt, and William H. Macy as assistant director Little Bill, whose wife, an adult actress played by Nina Hartley, will not stop humiliating him by having sex with other men at parties and telling him to go away. Boogie Nights is a salute to an end of an era and also the rise of kind of a chillier, terrifying new one. And a little bit of hope that people can get their lives together at the end of some turmoil. There are even more people in the cast than I just mentioned, but if I get into it, we're going to be here all day. So take a listen. Your cock is so beautiful. Yeah? Do you know how good you are doing it, Eddie? Having sex, fucking me, making love to me. Everyone has one thing, you think? I mean, everyone's given one special thing, right? That's right. Everyone's blessed with one special thing. Hey. I want you to know I plan on being a star. A big, bright, shining star. That's what I want. That's what I'm going to get. I know. I got to go. Boogie Nights hit theaters on October 10th, 1997. And what was in the zeitgeist that weekend? Well, end of an era is exactly right. 
you know, because five weeks before this, Princess Diana died. People were still processing her death, the idea of a world without her, without the people's princess. And in fact, this moment of like cultural kind of shock and mourning was so big that Elton John reached back into the 70s himself to dust out a classic that he resurrected, which then topped the Billboard Hot 100 for 14 weeks. Talk about like a major cultural shifting hit. This film is not only like the best-selling single in Billboard history, it's the first single ever certified diamond in the United States, and it won Elton John a Grammy. I am speaking, of course, of Candle in the Wind. And it seems to me you lived your life like a candle in the wind Never fading with the sunset when the rain set in And your footsteps will always fall here along England's greenest hills Your candles burned out long before Well, this is morbid, but do you think he's going to make another version for when Queen Elizabeth dies? Assuming she hasn't by the time this no. episode comes out. What? No, no way. <laughs> I uh, feel like that he doesn't have that kind of connection with all of the uh, the royalty of the UK. I mean, that was a very personal song. You know, I feel like he was affected by Princess Di. Well, yeah, but he's also a sir, and he's also a guy who likes to make... Okay, okay, fine. Do you think... Uh, what about oh, By the way, she's Yellow been Big dead Road? for a couple of weeks, right? We know that. <laughs> I've read Twitter. She's dead. Aw, I can't no, imagine a world without her. Don't go breaking my heart? You, you think he'll do that one? Rocket Man. Rocket Man is what they'll what they'll do. Uh, that's. I mean, that's Aww. her song. That's her jam. But no, uh, she's a crocodile rock girl. You know, 1997 is so long ago, Amy, but... It also feels like a time, at least for me, where I was coming into my own. And we talked about this a little while ago when we were talking about Days and Confused. This is another movie that I've watched so many times. It made me fall in love with Paul Thomas Anderson. It made me fall in love with these actors. And, you know, I think before we even like, kind of get into this movie, I just want to talk about casting. Like, this movie has some of the best actors that now have the longest careers. And I was wondering in watching it, is it all because of Boogie Nights or is it all just really great casting? And he just got lucky to get them all together in, in this moment. I, I, you know, I can't quite tell, like part of me feels like everyone who's associated with Boogie Nights went on to tremendous success because it was so beloved. It was so well done. And not to say that, Everyone has continued to have uh, the same level of quality in their performances, but a majority of them have. I mean, I feel like this really pushed so many smaller actors into such uh, bigger roles and, and, and recognition. Yeah, I mean, it feels like if he was getting to do a fantasy draft, that he just got to draft every single actor he wanted to work with, yeah. right? Like, you can't imagine any of these people being a second choice. But in 97... We don't know any of these people, ultimately. I mean, right, like Burt Reynolds is the person we're really hanging our hat on, right? The fact, and it was funny, watching the movie again, I was like, oh, I forgot Burt Reynolds is in this. Like, even, you know, because I, I don't think of him as like my first tier of everyone that I love in this movie. And he's phenomenal in this movie. He won a Golden Globe. Clearly hated Paul Thomas Anderson. Almost tried to punch him in the face, you know. Uh, he has it in his contract, Paul, that he's allowed to punch people in the face. I, I don't <laughs> think I'm making that up. I think that's actually really? true. 
Yeah, I think it's in Burt Reynolds' contract that he's allowed to punch you in the face if he gets mad. I, I will, you know, I wouldn't doubt it. I have a real fascination with Burt Reynolds. It's so complicated. Uh, but, I mean, besides the fact that he hated this movie and sold his Golden Globe that he won for this movie, like, that's how much he hated it. Uh, and also, like, that his like hesitation with this movie is like, I didn't know it was going to be about porn. I'm like, well then do you, you don't read like how, (laughs) how did you not, how did you not understand? Like, it's like, like his, his like objections to this movie being foul or dirty is so bizarre. It's like, no one could have tricked you into this. Like this is the movie that you are making in so many ways. It wasn't like this was bow fingered on him, but he acts as if it was. (laughs) Well, and it breaks my heart because he is so good in this. I just wish that he could have seen himself the way that I see him in this movie. He's magnificent. And it makes it doubly heartbreaking because I think in so many ways, his character is a stand-in for Paul Thomas Anderson as a guy talking about what he wants from film, what he thinks is important. You know, as a guy saying like, I believe in film as he does right here. All he wants to do in life is make one true film. No, I understand. You've got to get him in the theater. You got to keep the seats full. But I don't want to make a film where they show up, they sit down, they jack off, and they get up and they get out before the story ends. It is my dream. It is my goal. It is my idea to make a film that the story just sucks them in. And when they spurt out that joy juice, they just got to sit in it. They can't move until they find out how the story ends. You know, I want to make a film like that. And I understand, you know, they have to make films. I made them myself, you know, that are a few laughs. Everybody fucks their brains out, and that's fine. But it's my dream to make a film that is true and right and dramatic. I mean, if that's not a speech written by a filmmaker announcing what he wants to do with his career, now that he's all got our attention, I don't know what else is. Well, I know this movie is about, you know, the the porn business in the 70s. But I also think this movie is about exactly what you said, filmmakers, right? And this idea of how do you still make art in a world in which videos and back then, you know, 97, like these you know, made for cable movies. Like there was already this dilution of like great cinema. Right. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson is somebody who comes from this background of being inspired by directors out of the seventies and early eighties. And film is evolving here, like right at the end of the nineties into the two thousands, things are changing. And this is not only a throwback to that culture and these creators. I mean, I don't think this movie is as interesting if it's about the making of The Godfather. I think this movie is way more interesting telling this other story, but I do think the one level of this is about, you know, how do you make good art when the world around you is basically like, we don't care about that. Just get more, give us more content. And we live in that right now. It's like people, I have friends who make shows. I've been on shows and 
they just fly off into the sky. You know, they're just there. <laughs> like, there's just nothing, there's no more pomp and circumstance anymore. It's just sort of like, and you hope that you get a hit. You hope that something comes out. You hope that someone downloads it um, or gets on a streamer that someone has. It, it's a really interesting thing. I, I think that part of the movie hits harder for me even now because in a weird way, 97, you could see how he's seeing that that wave coming. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I mean, this is a movie that on the surface is about a vibe shift, but one half shade underneath that is about like a tech shift, you know, mm-hmm. and how you don't actually even know the moment that you're in is the moment that you're in until it's over. This movie starts and like, Film is king. Everybody thinks they're going to be on top forever. When people come in and they say like, oh, I don't know. I think you better prepare to be like getting ready into into going into the video business. Like Burt Reynolds is angry. Wait a minute. You come into my house, my party, to tell me about the future. That the future is tape, videotape, and not film. That it's amateurs and not professionals. I'm a filmmaker. That's why I will never make a movie on videotape. I'll tell you something else. I will never, ever loan out any of the wait, actors wait, wait, that wait, I have wait, 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 I'm not a complicated man. I like cinema. In particular, I like to see people fucking on film. But I don't want to win an Oscar, and I don't want to reinvent a wheel. I like simple pleasures, like butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy, call me a pervert. But there's one little thing that I want to do in this life. And that is, I want to make a dollar and a cent in this business. Jack, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you stay one step ahead of the game. We're going in circles now. We're in familiar territory. The territory we're in is the future. Not to mention the cost. And the thing is, you watch that in 1997 and you're like, oh, Bert, the problem is he's kind of right. And I like respect you for holding firm. But what you don't know uh, when you're Paul Thomas Anderson in 1997 is that maybe you're a little bit cynical about 1997, but he's actually part of like, to me, one of the best movements we ever had in film. And that was also part of a tech shift. We've talked about this before, but like late 90s, exactly this moment when suddenly studios are making huge money off of DVDs for like the first time ever, they're taking gambles on people like Paul Thomas Anderson and saying, you made a good uh, little Sundance film. Here's fifteen million dollars. That is a thing that doesn't to happen go now. Make even 
Well, to go make your passion project to about passion porn. project, that right? Not to go make now, a Marvel not movie. Not at that number. Not at anything. Like well, you don't does. get to make your. Well, yeah, but you don't get to make your film right. for fifteen million dollars. Not even like adjusting for inflation. You don't get to make your film for for a million dollars ever. Looking and at like, this movie, going like, how do you make this movie? Like, how do you come out of making Heart Eight, which I've seen, and uh, Phil Baker Hall, great in that movie. And again, we said it's not really his full vision because he didn't have control over it. But how do you see Hard Eight and go, we are going to finance. This movie is sprawling. It's over two and a half hours. You know, this is this in every way should not work. I mean, the content of it is risky. Uh, the actors, I mean, Burt Reynolds here. Yes, he's amazing, but it's interesting that he's cast. He's not bringing in an audience, right? It's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. You put Burt Reynolds in this role, but it's not like upcasting where all of a sudden you put a giant star in a small indie and you, you cross your fingers like this is going to work. So every part of this doesn't make sense. And it's, well, no. yeah, and, and it like, works brilliantly. And it didn't even when it was like greenlit. I mean, like New Line tells him, okay, listen, I can tell that you're this ambitious kid who's, by the way, 26 when he's convincing New Line to fund this movie. He's like, I want to make an epic. I want it to be over three hours long. I want it to be NC-17. And New Line was like, uh, three hours and NC-17? Pick one. We'll give you one. And he was like, fine, I'll go for length and I'll try to cut like down the rating. But even that was like hard. They had to submit this movie to the MPA like 18 times. Well, you know, part of it was multitasking, right? They didn't want conversations to be happening while humping essentially like they're like can you say a line hump stop say another line hump like they needed to dole out the dialogue which is really interesting it's <laughs> you know again the mpaa is uh, a bizarre organization uh you know that i and again the fact that this movie got out without an r i mean you have to say like that's pretty amazing but i do think uh like that idea that you can't be talking while having sex you know, somehow makes it. <laughs> now you got to have a saxophone and some gauzy white curtains. Like that's totally cool. You can yes. do that. But yeah, I mean, it's astounding to me. This film even managed to come out in the way that it did, because whenever they were test screening it for audiences, it was the craziest thing. Like they would show it to a bunch of people and then they would get back reports where people were rating it like in the thirties out of like mm. a scale of 100, the thirties. And like Paul Thomas Anderson is freaking out. You know, he's really bad everything on this film. And he's like, I, th I feel like when I'm in that theater with people, they're laughing, they're saying it's wonderful, but then they like fill out the report and they give me the lowest score possible. What is happening? Are they feeling like they are feeling guilty for enjoying something that feels illicit and dirty? That's kind of what he realized. He like, they did like screening after screening after screening. I think they did at least five test screenings. All of them seemed great in the room. All of them came back with scores in the 30s. And what he finally realized is that people loved it, but they were terrified that if they recommended it to their friends, it would make them look bad. So right. the fifth time they like sent this out and they got back a review in the thirties, Paul Thomas Anderson literally grabbed the score paper and put it in his mouth and chewed it up and then spit it out. And then he stepped on it. And he was <laughs> well, like, he said for Magnolia, we're never doing this again. I don't care about audience test scores. I'm not letting it happen. Well, I mean, this movie was kind of doomed from the beginning. And and I say that because you've probably read the the script synopsis of it, right? Like 
in Hollywood, there are readers. You know, they are sometimes, whether it's an agent's assistant or a studio executive, they will read the script and they'll give a little synopsis of it so uh, their bosses can get through the scripts quicker. And when you look at this, I mean, this, first of all, the recommendation to make the movie, no. Concept, poor. Characterization, fair. Dialogue, fair. Storyline, poor. I mean, it is... It is crazy. I mean, here's the logline that they wrote. A porn actor with a large penis rises to the top of his profession but becomes a drug addict and his career and personal life collapse. After learning of his parents' deaths, he reforms and returns to top form as a porn star. Parents' deaths was cut out of the final Yeah, film. it was, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that just makes it clear that the people who think they're giving audiences what they want are sometimes wrong, to be honest. Like, I, I think that there is... Not only like this great moralizing streak in this country, but I think there is a huge streak of like condescension towards Mm. towards movies like this. I think there's a condescension in this country towards other audience members like I'm smart, but the people who like those other movies are stupid, which tends to be like the most popular movies in America. Like, I think we tend to look down on other people who aren't ourselves. And I don't know why we do that. I think it's like maybe we talked about this a little bit even in our like Talladega Nights episode. But I do feel like readers like that and a lot of producers in the industry don't trust the American public to be smart enough to enjoy a movie like this. Well, but and I find I'll, that really I'll also argue, yes, I, like I think that sometimes at face value, you can look at this script and read like the logline that I just read to you. And that's what this movie is on some level, right? That is the meat and potatoes of this movie. Uh, oh, who wants to watch a porn, you know, a porn star rise to fame and then crash and then come back? Like it just it is what it is in black and white. But I guess what it's missing is all the finesse like this movie. In a way. Are these beautiful set pieces that are exploding with life and and characterization like every character is so nuanced, but they're not nuanced in a way where I think the jokes are popping off the page. I think they're nuanced in a way where they are incredibly funny, but they're not selling themselves out. And it's very hard to tell what that is when you're reading something. You have to see that done. Like, you know, because um, I was really impressed the entire time. Like, this movie loves porn. And I hope that that's the right term we should be using right now. I think it is. But, like, this idea that, like, This is not like, oh, porn is stupid, porn is silly. This treats it incredibly seriously, and the people who do it love it and want to do better at it. Now, yes, they may have different levels of their wants and desires, and and Mark Wahlberg's character has been called dumb, and he may be a little bit naive, but it's not like anyone is being tricked or it's, it's... it truly is like what you said about Burt Reynolds, like someone who wants to make something really good. And I think reading that tonally is hard. I think you're like, well, what is this? Like, you know, what what am I seeing here? Like, does he mean it when he says that this is the best thing he's ever made? Does he mean it when he wants people to cream in their seats in the, you know, in the theater? Like that that monologue about what he wants people to do in a porn theater is incredibly funny, but it also is like truthful to that character, yeah. you know, and he's it's not like, delivering it like it's funny. He's delivering no. it like it's what he wants on his tombstone. I mean, it's a Paul Thomas Anderson. I guess there's a frankness about porn that I find interesting in the way he even talks about it at the time. He's like, 
yeah, when I was a kid, my dad was the first person on our block who owned a VCR. And at nine years old, I watched the opening of Misty Beethoven, you know, like one of those classic 70s era porns that came out in that, that tiny little window where suddenly porn was almost considered mainstream. That mm-hmm. little, little bit right when we had like Deep Throat and Beyond the Green Door. You know, the director of Deep Throat is who Paul Thomas Anderson like modeled Burt Reynolds's character after, you know, a guy named Gerard Demiano. And he, you know, took porn very seriously. He's also a pretty bad guy. If you read Linda Lovelace's autobiography, she wrote four of them. But Paul Thomas Anderson like nods to him directly with Burt Reynolds's hair. Like that kind of silvery streak stuff mm. comes exactly from him. The mustache comes exactly from him. He um, interviewed him even to like get ready to make this film. And this Paul Damiano thing is interesting because this is also Quentin Tarantino's real big issue with the film. You've you've seen this before, right? That, oh, I haven't seen it. That's from an interview I did with Tarantino. Wait. He said that to me. Whoa, yeah. I oh, did not know ahead. this. Okay, well, yeah. no, well, you were there, so talk to me about it because this is great. <laughs> oh, wow, I did not realize that you are the source of this. This is great. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did that um, a podcast series with Quentin Tarantino uh, a couple of years ago for The Ringer where I picked out a handful of films he'd show, he's shown at the New Beverly and I used it to talk to him about his career. And we were talking about Boogie Nights, you know, and talking about like him and that moment in the 90s and like Paul Thomas Anderson. And yeah, he was like, I have an issue with that movie. And you know how it is when he's talking to you in person. He's like, tall and exuberant and sort of moving his hands around and being very compelling. He's like, Gerard Damiano would have never looked at that bad porn scene that he's looking at when he says, oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever done and thought it was the greatest thing he's ever done. That moment was bullshit. He would have known that it was what it was. And so he said that one flaw has always kind of chewed at him. Yeah, there is something really interesting about it because truthfully, at the end of the film, when you watch like the the Wahlberg clone doing his version of that, it's slightly worse. I mean, it's it's not like night and day, but I think what that scene is about is the joy in making it right. The the collaboration in it and that like and what that moment represents is like everything working together really well everyone feeling like they are all working to a larger goal. And then at the end, it just feels like we're just punching the clock. And I think that's truly what we're, what we're witnessing and not the quality on screen. And I would say that that was probably the, the only moment that kind of rings false about porn, because you look at him going, that's, this is the best work we've ever made. I think it's like, this is the most fun I've ever had making porn because you look at it, it's it's pretty terrible. It's trash. This is the best work we've ever done. I mean, it's a real film, Jack. It feels good. You made it fly. You know, this is a film I want them to remember me by. Fair point. But I will say, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the only major directors who... at at least especially at this point when he's 26 years old and sort of fearless, talks openly about watching porn when he mm-hmm. was a kid. Like he said that he wanted this film to resemble his own personal experience of watching porn, that he wanted it to be incredibly funny one second, he wanted to turn you on the next second, that he wanted it to be incredibly depressing. He wanted to get this range. And the way he talks about porn as like a genre of film where if you sit down the way that he's describing it and just watch an entire movie intact, you go through all these emotional changes inside of you. I, I've actually never heard anybody discuss it that way, you know, where, it, where 
the way that he looks at porn is a thing that draws out these different competing feelings inside of you. And how can you capture that? I thought that was like an interesting way of framing it. I love that idea. Because he's like idea. saying he wants it to be both true to the turmoil of a porn, but also feel like Lawrence of Arabia of the Valley. And well, I mean, those yeah. polarities. And I think it actually works, though, because I think, you know, what you were saying about the test scores from the audience, like that connection, you feel guilty for enjoying porn. We have a puritanical society. So it's like, oh, you know, if you're watching porn f- to whatever, to to pleasure yourself, whatever you're watching porn for, but there probably is a moment where you're like, where reality seeps in and you check out and then you feel bad. And it's like, you're constantly in this moment. I think that that's a really interesting way of framing the movie because the movie definitely makes you feel like, I want to be in this world. I want to never see these people again. Yeah, you know what it feels like we're talking about in a way is like the great debate that we have with something like a Scorsese movie where Mm -hmm. you're showing something seedy, you know, and people have that kind of common complaint you hear. Like, are you glorifying this? Are you glorifying the Wolf of Wall Street? Are you glorifying this terrible moment and these terrible people who did this terrible thing? And terrible is like a judgment that I don't think is even put on the people of Boogie Nights necessarily. But what I think Paul Paul Thomas Anderson does so skillfully is he shows you this full image of a society without glamorizing it. And I think so much of that is just in how he films the action. Like to me, this is like a masterclass in using your camera to tell a story that you're right, isn't on the script that people wouldn't have seen. And maybe one way to talk about it is just how he shows this, this world through that repeating thing he does of tracking shots that like follow characters through a party. You know, this is a motif that he goes back to over and over and over again in the film. And every time he does it, it's a little bit different. And he's showing you a different side of the tone of this party. I mean, starting with the beginning one, this like great opening tracking shot, you know, his way of like out scorsese Scorsese. And you have like, you know, the bright pink neon, you pan up to see that it's Reseda, then you pin down to the car, then you see that it's like San Fernando Valley, 1977. Then you see like Burt Reynolds and Julianne Moore get out of the car. Then you see them walk in and you have Luis Guzman and he's like talking about clams. Then you're following Guzman and Guzman is like dancing and he's high-fiving everybody. And there's You introduce every single member of the cast. It's It's like an opening number of a musical. It's like this is the overture of this piece is yeah. this introduction, even if it's small, like when you see William H. Macy and it, you feel so immersed in this world and it just ends perfectly on the person who is one foot in this world and one foot out. And that is in many ways us. And of course, Mark Wahlberg's character, which is, you know, this person who, you know, what do you think in that moment? Is is he, does he want in or is he, just like to gawk. Well, it's such a great example of visual storytelling because that camera is telling you, like, you want to be part of this party. Like the way it's moving and circling around people, you're like, these people are the center of the world. And then when you finally get that shot of Mark, he looks alone and kind of like separate from the action. He's like the first person we see who doesn't seem like he has, he's included and he's wearing that kind of stark white shirt. He just Mm -hmm. doesn't fit. And it's like- He's doing grunt work like he is in like everyone else is dressed to the nines. There's a a, he's working like Louis Guzman is working, but he's the maitre d'. He's the doorman. He's you know, he is he's the owner. Right. And even the person delivering the clams is dressed better and positions it down like there's there's a fluidity. There's a magic to it. There's there's pomp and circumstance. And he is literally a blank slate, a white blank slate. And then he just cuts and he cuts straight to looking at Bert watching him 
and right in that moment, you get like, this is what this film is about. It's about this man seeing Mark Wahlberg for the first time and how that is going to like interrupt this whole party. You know, the, the way he uses the camera to tell a story, I just find like astounding. He, he has that, Macy, the way he has Macy enter the frame right after that isn't like the camera panning over Macy. He has Macy pop up like he's interrupting, like he's yes. this irritant, you know, and then he the camera like follows Burt Reynolds and he goes to the back of the restaurant. He leaves like this glamorous heaven this like the palace reverse where everybody of the is Scorsese happy. shot right yeah. it's like we don't go through the kitchen to see the Copacabana yeah. we go to the Copacabana and then go into the kitchen yeah we see Burt Reynolds giving up a piece of his world to see what this kid is all about and what he can bring him and that's all just there subtly in the camera and in the editing it's like and how do you beautiful. communicate that in a script like I like there are certain things like you can describe, like we enter into this club and we see this and that and we see, you know, but you, but what I was realizing in this film, first of all, did not realize how many tracking shots are in here, like how amazing they are. Like when I think about tracking shots, I don't ever put this movie up there. And like, there are multiple sequences in this film. I mean, obviously the movie is bookended by two brilliant ones, but the sister Christian one in the middle, like there are these moments where just living in this, we're, we're there with these characters. I just, I mean, for me personally, just forgot that it's there. But uh, I, I just, I am kind of blown away at the mastery of how he can even give you a little taste of every character, even without a line. Like, again, we, yeah, Mark Wahlberg is the biggest example, but you even see a moment of uh, Buck Swope, Don Cheadle's character, like, just saying, like, hey, you like it? I'm a cowboy now. I'm a cow-. Like, it's it's small. And when you see the movie twice, just three times, you, you understand it, you see it more. But it's like everyone is just painting a little bit of their characters all so nuanced. It's, it really is. I mean, I'm just, I am completely blown away by that opening. It's And, and, and the ending. I mean, I think you have to talk about both of them as these amazing bookends because they're very similar, but they are so telling. They do so much work to launch you in and to push you out the door. I, I I think it's a really, it's it's masterful. And I can't imagine how many takes they did to get that so perfectly. And on film? What's that? I've been pissed off you haven't been around. Oh, we were on vacation. Listen, don't you ever stay away from my club that long again, okay? Got it. Enough for nothing, honey, but you are the sexiest bitch in the thing. God, dude, I love you. You're such a charmer. Okay, listen, I got your uh, booth set up over there, some plans. I'm going to send them right over. Listen, Jack, I'm ready. I'm available. You put me in a movie, okay? We're talking yeah, box yeah, office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Box office, Jack. Well, yeah, it took them like 12 hours to get that opening shot. I mean, 12 hours to nail it, which is just like a ton of choreography. So I mean, much work, so many extras. Yeah. But like what I think is special is it's not just like showy and beautiful. Every time he goes back to a similar kind of setup, it's telling a different story. You know, like later on, we go back to the nightclub like a year later. And this is when everything is supposed to be kind of fine. You know, like. Dirk Diggler's on the top of the world. Everybody's partying. It's like when he's doing that whole like red vest dance and all the girls are kneeling around him. Everything should be great. But what happens when you really closely watch this scene is you realize that every conversation that people are having the next time you go to this club 
is like not actually working. Like nobody's understanding each other. None of the conversations are gelling. All of this flow that we had in the opening scene is like completely scrambled. Everyone's misunderstanding, having to yell to be heard. I mean, there's a little bit like at the bar as one example where like John C. Riley is trying to impress John Cheadle by doing card tricks for him. Incredible. Does it make you nervous when you're dealing with all those evil forces? Horses? What? No, the evil forces. Evil? No, man. It's not evil. It's an illusion. Yeah, yeah, it's confusing. I mean, that scene is funny, but it's also telling you subconsciously, like, people think things are fine, but things are actually not fine. Well, People are actually not gelling the way that they were. I also think there's something about that sequence, too, where that first open, they're all connected. Like, they're all on a train moving forward, right? If they follow this analogy, maybe... It's bad, but I'll I'll say it. They're all on a train moving forward, but they're all individually in their own cars doing their own thing. And it feels like when we go back to it, they're all kind of jammed together. It's like there's no individuality. Like It's almost like they're all together now. And that lack of individuality is actually corrupting the greater good of the world, if that makes sense. You know, uh, does that like am I kind of hitting something there? Because I, I think that there is something really interesting about how this world turns because it is a family, you know, and then we're watching about a family, but it's almost like the family becomes centered around one person and it doesn't become about every member of the family making the family great. And that one person destroys the entire family. I have some theories on this too, but, uh, but I mean that, I think that that's what you're seeing in this sequence. Like Mark Wahlberg is running that dance. Everyone's around him. People are, are back behind him instead of on the same plane as him. And while we're still here talking about this club, I just want to talk about like this idea of a tracking shot. I think a tracking shot is so interesting because I've worked with a lot of first time directors. I've also directed. And I think the idea is, wouldn't it be great to do something in a one -er? like we could keep all this action. It will flow. And and a lot of the times that's like your ego talking. It's like, oh, I want to do all of this and make it feel so fluid. And you're not making a choice for the scene. You're just making a choice because it will look and feel cool. And inevitably, I've been in this position numerous times when you're in an edit, you're like, oh, fuck, I got to cut this one or we have no real coverage here because now it's just too long. I'm not. And I think the reason why it's too long is because you're not painting all these little flavors. Like the opening of Boogie Nights, like it's a oneer, but we're meeting like 12 characters. You're learning something every, every frame you're learning something. So it doesn't feel old. And I think with PTA making this movie and it's his first real big, big budget movie, like making these big choices, doing these oneers might have felt, and this is why I think why him and Burt Reynolds did get into a fight. Like, oh, this is just unbridled ego, first-time director trying to do all this shit and feeling like I'm no one's ever done this before. And Burt Reynolds is like, uh, I've done this 12 times before. Like, But he's not actually seeing what he's doing. Because I think there's a lot of moves in here that are so expertly done, but are also incredibly hacky choices when done badly. And, you know, and I think... Being on the set, you might be like, why the fuck are we doing this again? What's going on? What are you getting? But when you see the finished product, it's all there. It's not just a tracking shot for a tracking shot. It's not just these wide shots that are wasting your time. Like uh, it's the each one of them, each one of these like little mini music videos in a way are just 
capturing a level of anxiety, emotion, and feeling. And that's, and these scenes are so tied to emotion. I feel like, you know, whether it's the look of Mark Wahlberg, whether it's the the moment at the end of uh, Burt Reynolds with his chin on Juliana Moore's head, like, like these moments are imbued with so much, like there's so much emotional weight. I mean, you're exactly right. Like the way Bert has described him even, he said that he thought PTA was like young and full of himself. And he said that, you know, this is his quote, every shot we did, it was like the first time, as in PT Anderson thought, acted like it was the first time anything like that had ever been done on cinema. And he was kind of rolling his eyes at that. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, I guess, especially probably when he, when you are young, when you are like 26 seemed to have an ego, like Sharon Waxman wrote this book, you know, um, like Rebels in the Moonlight about this period of the 90s. And she quotes a lot of anonymous people saying that he had like this boy genius streak that he'd be like really insulting to people, Mm -hmm. uh, that when people would give him like advice that he didn't think he needed, he would just sort of mumble, yeah, right, whatever the fuck. I mean, and he did have enough of an ego that like he has admitted that when he was seven years old, he had a notebook and in it he wrote, my name is Paul Anderson. I want to be a writer, producer, director, special effects man. I know how to do everything, and I know everything. Please hire me. At By the seven. way, he's I only mean, twenty-one years apart from that. And I will, I will say, honestly, his talent backs it up. Like, and that's, I, well, you know, and he's yeah. working with great people. Like, I mean, he's working with like but you know, Robert Selzman as a cinematographer. He's working with like Dylan Teichner, who is like, I think to me, this oh. is probably the best edited film I've ever seen. Production but he was, design, like, editing, yeah. and camera are phenomenal in this film uh, without, you know, and and costuming as well. I mean, everything, uh, casting. But I will say, why do we give such a uh, independent directors, blah, 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 but like James fucking Cameron, Steven Spielberg, they all have the same ego. Like they all believe themselves to be great. Like, I mean, I always talk about that video of Steven Spielberg watching the Academy Award nominations for Jaws. Like he's getting ready to get. Oh, yeah. You know, like he's no different than this. He's no different. But we, we view no different than this. indie filmmakers so differently than like blockbuster filmmakers. And it's a funny idea because it's the same energy. It, it just is. It's it, there's no difference, and, and like Scorsese probably is in the middle of that because I I probably view him more as an indie director. But there's no like Scorsese isn't like, hmm, what do you guys think I should do for this? Like, no way, he fucking knows what he wants. He's known what he wants. Like these people know what they fucking want. Like, and they're gonna tell you, and they're gonna make it. You know, David Fincher, all these people, like Kubrick. But we view like this young snotty indie director because it's like it's. It seems less than it's like, oh, it's just a movie where people are fucking talking. You don't have to have such a but it but in poorer hands, this is a different movie. Well, yeah, I wonder at what age someone like Paul Thomas Anderson transitions, you know, from being like the upstart to being I would say like we we consider him one of our major landmark directors right now. Mm -hmm. As astonishing as it is that he's never won an Oscar like ever, you know, he he's like he's had his casket nominated, you know. Burt Reynolds was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this. Julianne Moore was nominated for Best Supporting Actress with this, which I really appreciated her performance this watch around, by the way, because I really thought, oh, she plays Amber like Amber is high in every scene. And I don't mean like on Coke, because when she's on Coke, yeah, she's like super specifically speedy. You know, that little bit that she has with Mm -hmm. um, Heather Graham, like the You're My Mom scene. Yeah. I miss my two sons, you know, I miss my, my little Andrew and... 
and my Dirk. You know, I always felt like Dirk was my, my baby, my new baby. Don't you miss Dirk? Yeah. He's so fucking talented, the bastard. You know, I just... I love him, Rock Girl. I mean, I really love Stupid Dream. <laughs> I love you, Mom. I want you to be my mom, Amber. Are you my mom? I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you if you're my mom, okay? And, and you say yes, okay? Are you my mom? Yes, buddy. <laughs> yes. Yes. But, like, from the beginning, from that very beginning, watching her, I'm like, oh, that girl's on, like, pain pills or something, right? Or, like, well, downers. She's, like, she's well, out of it. And she, I wanna, the way she moves her head. Like, have you been around people who are on, like, pills where they are just checked out? Mm-hmm. I think she plays Amber. Like, she's stoned on some sort of doll the entire movie and then sometimes kind of perks up with Coke. But, like, I think she's high when we don't see her getting high. I want to talk about Amber. And this may be a great point to do it. I was saying before that this movie is, you know, this is about a family. This is a family movie. We're watching the relationships that get brought in, the way that they take care of people. And, you know, obviously, Burt Reynolds and Julianne Moore are housing misfit toys, uh, sometimes literally in their house. And I would argue that Burt Reynolds is housing Julianne Moore as a misfit toy. Like, they are very different in age. I mean... Julianne Moore might be roller girl, like just, you know, and then she just fell in with him because I think you watch that little story of her also getting something out of Mark Wahlberg's character. But I wanted to talk about this idea of like the toxic mother, because I firmly believe that the reason why everything goes south is it was what Julianne Moore does in this movie, and I'm not I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying that she's so fucked up uh, on pills, but also in her own life that she she co-ops Mark Wahlberg's innocence right by introducing him to drugs, mm-hmm. um, and we lose that thing. The thing that makes him kind of special is his innocence. I think Roller Girl has that innocence. I think Buck Swope has that innocence. Uh, John C. Riley, like. And she yeah, co-ops all of those that. guys are playing their characters like little kids, to be yeah. honest. They like, you know, they like karate chopping and being the big man and hot wheels and lifting. That, like they're all little boys playing dress that up. That scene where Don Cheadle, I love Don Cheadle. And this is like the beginning of me. Like, I mean, this version of Don Cheadle, the out of sight, the boogie nights, traffic Don Cheadle. When you were like, who is this guy? And when he pops up, I'm excited. Like this era I was so like, whenever I saw him, it got me like jazzed. That scene in the bank where he's like, just just tell me where to sign or just tell me what I'll put. I'll just, I'll do anything. I mean, there's a couple things at play there, right? Like, yes, he's in porn. They're rejecting his loan. Is it also like maybe veiled racism in there too? Maybe, I don't know, but maybe probably based on everything that we understand from our society. But his reaction to it uh, is so child like well what did I do wrong tell me how I could fix it like I, I want to fix it like it's so innocent um and I think there's something about this movie and talking about innocence because he's the only one that's really never corrupted and everything kind of turns out okay for him like you know even though he's seen some fucked up shit he succeeds anyway but uh, just to go back to Julianne Moore and I'm sorry I'm throwing a bunch of stuff there I just believe from the moment 
and excuse my language, but I think we have to say it. Like from the moment she says like, come inside me to Mark Wahlberg, like, like, cause he's supposed to, you know, come on her breasts, like in that scene. And she's like, come inside me. Like she starts to take him down this road, right? This is like this road that is about corrupting him. And she she is a really tough character. She's a really like, and it's an interesting one because I think that she's viewed very quietly, but she, I think she is the, the, is the earthquake through this family. And yes, Mark Wahlberg is the figurehead of that, but she created that. Well, yeah. Cause what do you think is happening when she tells him to do that? You know, because he's not supposed to do that. He's supposed to go outside of her body so it can be right. recorded. She tells him to do the thing that she knows he's not supposed to do. And then, like, he almost gets in trouble for it. Like, William H. Macy is like, what? No, come on. And if it weren't for the fact that he was, like, biologically blessed and just able to kind of bounce up and go again, he could have maybe been in trouble for that. So is she trying to get him in trouble or is she just, like, so out of it that she's breaking the rules? Is she, like, subconsciously hoping to have another kid? Like, what is happening? I I think there's a couple things at play. I also think there's something deeper with the the mother relationship you said they cut out that um that dirk's parents die i think that that's actually pretty good but the way that his mother treats him like that scene is a brutal scene when he comes home late at night and she's sitting there waiting and she's like what's his mother seems like she's also attracted to him like yeah why are you with that woman what are you doing with that woman it's not like why are you in porn why are you working over there is like why you you are trash you're a dummy she is she's like obsessed with who he's sleeping with and right, not even like so, when he's doing porn, but just because he's like sleeping with a girl from the neighborhood. But she's like obsessed with her son. And she's so innocent, that girl from the neighborhood. It's not like it's not like she's uh, another um, like she's a married woman. There's nothing illicit yeah. about. And I mean, so much so that, you know, you you have that lead in where you're like, oh, she wants this other thing. You think she wants sex, but she just really wants to be like bounced up on the bed. You know, they just they're doing something so childlike and. But this mother also has this kind of complex with him. And where she's outwardly mean, I think Julianne Moore pulls him in and is like, I'm going to protect you. But she's so incapable of being a mother. You know, I think that she, I think that she, she corrupts him. And not to say that, like, you know, I don't want to be in this vein of being like, oh, women are bad. Or, you know, but I think that it's about her as a mother. I think it's about her. You understand why she shouldn't have access to her own well, child. Yeah. I she think. shouldn't have access to her own child. Like when we see her in court crying because she can't have access to her own child. It's like one scene after we've seen her doing a bunch of coke with Heather Graham and getting Heather mm-hmm. Graham really screwed up. Like she probably should not have a young child in that environment. Like I don't know she how you can't can argue. emotionally handle yeah. it. Because I think, I, yeah. yeah. Well, that's she what I wants think is innocence. interesting because like she... I think that it's a, I get a little tedious with how basically every scene she's in, she has to use the word mom. You know, it's yeah. like every scene. I feel like that's the one thing where like, do you not trust this Paul Thomas Anderson to get it? I think we got it. I think we got it much earlier on. But I am amazed that he can pull off this kind of character who on the surface looks like the sweetest person in the movie, you know, and yet is the one who is, I think, doing an equal well, amount of damage underneath the scene, if not more. Than- well, that's what I think is so interesting in this watch was like, Oh, she's doing so much more, so much so, or I think the character is doing so much work and she's portraying it so effortlessly that it's very hard to look at her negatively because she is giving everybody 
in a way what they want. She's walking him through that sex scene. She's helping him do his first role. She's giving Heather Graham that connection to her mother that she so desperately needs. She's giving Burt Reynolds um, not only like this arm candy that he can feel like still vibrant in, like, you know, like, you know, she runs protection. Like she, with her at his side, he can bring all these people in. It's not that creepy. If you call me mom, if you, even by saying I am mom, she's resetting the table. She's resetting this table to say like, no, 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 no. There's nothing wrong here. She's constantly, you know, it's very much you like know, a Lady Macbeth performance. She's like the toxic giving tree. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just like giving pieces of herself, but it's all poisoned apples. You know, yeah. like here, mm-hmm. take my attention, take my love. And I think what keeps her from being a villain is I think she's like, out of her mind the whole time, just like totally blitzed and not not present and seeming to be so calm about her life because she is, you know, something in her sort of snapped. And she's like a little balloon floating over her head, kind of floating through this body. And you never know what she'll bump into, what will pop, what will destroy. Like, it's because I don't blame her. I don't feel like she's being like a proactive villain when she asks when she asks Dirk to get high with her. I mean, she's completely out of it already. She's already super stoned. Like, it, how conscious is she that she's ruining this kid's life? But I think, but I think this movie is all about like innocence vampires, right? Everybody that comes into this world, with the exception of the Colonel uh, and uh, and Philip Baker Hall, who seem to be businessmen, right? They uh, or on some level, like whatever their own issues are, but they are they are the adults. And these are kids having a party, even 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 Burt Reynolds as the father figure. And yes, he's older. You know, there are these things of like we need innocence. Innocence fuels our world. And it, it maybe it's like I want to get back to that. The closer I am to that, like like when she the way that she looks in the same way that Philip Seymour Hoffman, amazing performance as well, like looks at Mark Wahlberg the first time, like the way that their eyes and the camera shows Mark Wahlberg through their eyes, like Julianne Moore's eyes, like vroom, it's yeah. almost like a telescope lens. The same thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman, like vroom. Yeah. Like, and it's like and, the Steven Spielberg shot. What is that? What is yeah, that they alien? Want, they want this pure, like if, if someone pure loves them, if someone pure, if they can be with someone pure and not jaded, it's like, I think it gives them power in a way. And and, and, and again, this is like all subtle, but I think it is about, I'm not a bad person. I I still can be loved. I can still, I'm still acceptable. I'm still, you know, wanting. And everybody in this world, we see some of the stories. We don't see them all. We don't know Roller Girl's story fully. Uh, But they all are looking for acceptance and innocence. Yeah, and I think the movie does convince us that they're not bad people necessarily, but they are, like, broken. And, like, the drugs are definitely bad. And like the compromises you can make are definitely bad. Like, or I guess what it's arguing is that people you can love are capable of doing terrible things. Cause you do like Burt Reynolds in this movie. And yet you are aware that like by palling around with the Colonel, the Colonel is just letting girls die left and right of cocaine. It doesn't really care and brings them to parties and they pass out and they get arrested. And like, I mean, when he that- sees him in jail that first time, that's what he thinks the Colonel's in jail for. Just one more girl dying of cocaine, which Burt has helped him cover up for. And it's well, only by when the way, he realizes that, yeah. like, it's, you know, because he's, like, a pedophile, that f- something in Bert finally kind of is like, okay, my friendship with this guy can't continue. 
and there's that scene, you know, they're just like across the glass from each other in the prison. And like, he's, he's like begging him, like, am I your friend? Right. And that feels like the crux of all of this. Are these characters our friends? Is he his friend? When do you have a friend? When can you walk away? I mean, I want to listen to that because it, it ends with silence where like one of the brilliant things I think Paul Thomas Anderson does is like not letting the scene end on a high, letting the scene end on like cutting off the microphone to the colonel, having the colonel talk to him quietly for like 20 seconds. We don't see a word that he's saying. It's the opposite of dramatic. And then having Burt Reynolds walk away. She was just at the, she was at your place. You were just, you didn't do anything, right? Right. Nothing. You didn't do anything to her. Not a thing. You know me, Jack. I didn't do a thing. You didn't do anything. No, I didn't do anything. All right, nothing. But they, uh, they found something at the house. What? There's something. It's Jack, it's my fucking weakness, Jack. It's just, they're so small, Jack, and they're so cute, and they're so oh, adorable. I just can't help it when they're so cute. and adorable, right? No, no, Jack, listen, listen, listen I don't touch them, Jack. I, I, I don't touch them in any way, honestly. Jack, please. Jack, come on. Tell me that you're my friend. Just tell me, am I your friend? Am I? And I want to say, like, if there is a chilling thing about this movie, it is how easily people turn their backs on their friends. I mean, yes, you need to turn your back on the colonel. You probably shouldn't have been friends with the colonel anyway. But you get a sense that kind of friendships in this movie do kind of ebb and flow if you aren't careful, that people can kind of walk away from each other really easily, that like as much as we think of them as a family and as much as they pretend to be a family, if they're not proactive about it, they uh, they do walk away from each other. They do kind of use each other here and there. there there's something, I think, very cold in their friendship if, if they don't run, nurture it, if they don't well, make if we, the decision if we, to if we it. run the idea that these are the adults, like Burt Reynolds is looking to those two men for approval. Well, we got to talk to the colonel. Well, we got it. You know, you got to I got to introduce you to the colonel. Like he is not like those two men are the approval. Like they're the money men. Right. That that he has to go to um, that he has to entertain. And if you go like these are kids left away on a, a weekend, their parents are away from the house. They're throwing these parties. They're doing this stuff like whenever they're confronted with actually something dark. And I think what we are led to believe is that. Our puritanical American sense of porn is that porn is a dark, dirty industry. This movie goes like, yeah, porn is just what we do. We're filmmakers. We're actors. We love it. Everything is fine here in porn. So, like, if we treat that the way that the film treats it, which is like, we're having fun. It's all good. But when the real things come in, I'm a pedophile. I'm a drug addict. My I am now... I am taking away your power. I am doing the, when these real issues come in, that's when the, the family kind of fractures because they don't really have, uh, they don't even have the emotional capability to deal with it in a way. Cause they're yeah. kind of living in this beautiful high school esque world of like, everything is safe for in this little dome. And then when something comes in, that's really dark. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, well, it that's really, why I think yeah. like the 1980 party is so pivotal. 
that party looks at the beginning like it's fun, right? You know, like you have, you know, um, you have even like Dirk Diggler kind of like talking to Jesse, sort of being fun. Like they seem like they're having a good time at yet another backyard party. When he gets pulled away by Julianne Moore to go do drugs in the back room, again, you just have like Paul Thomas Anderson making that choice to like stay on Jesse, you know? And like the one person she was talking to at this like supposedly really cool party just left. Now she's sitting there and it just lets her look bored. Like she's surrounded by all these people who seem to be having fun, but is she really having fun? And then he cuts from her to Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle is also looking really alone. And there's something in his camera being surrounded by people running around and thinking that they're having a great time. He finds the people looking alone in all of it. And that is just what I love again about like using a camera to take away the the glamour from what could be just seen as like a cool setting of people doing cool, crazy stuff. But this idea also is... You know, like in the the sign says goodbye 70s, hello 80s. And hello 80s isn't just the era. It's all these new people coming in. And each one of these people that comes in destroys the family, right? It's like, and, and one of the things that's so interesting is the the last shot of the movie, the, the final tracking shot. Again, I'm not breaking that down right now. I'm just saying that it is about getting back to the core. The core that we saw at the beginning is the core that we see at the end. Not these other characters, not the Thomas Jane, not the not the Mark Wahlberg clone. It's this crew. And I think what they what they've done is they opened it up. They they need to make more content. They open up the doors a little bit wider. They let more, you know, the industry in a weird way is making them, you know, corrupt themselves What they all everything about them. It's like, you know, and, and it. There's no more support there. I don't know. There, you know. Uh, yeah, that, and I feel you know, like you like, could say that, like, setting it at a New Year's party, like setting this huge transition, might seem a bit on the nose. Having William H Macy kill himself at like one second to midnight, I was like, oh man, that's a bit too perfect. But then I think, how else do you wrangle all of these ideas into a story if you don't like really kind of bookmark it on specific major timestamps like that? Well, I, like, mean, I think it only makes about- sense. It's you have to structure something this big on kind of such obvious landmarks. Well, you just said, you know, 1997 is this end of an era. Like, and, you know, and this is kind of, again, like, I think the uh, the idea of, you know. Well, I think it's a, a rise of an era. The rise of an era that's so right. good that he well, doesn't know end, that it's good. Yeah. Well, I think it's like the, yes, right. And I think there's this like passing of a baton. Like whenever that happens, it's like something is changing. Something is growing. Sometimes the thing that grows is bad. Sometimes the thing that grows is Good, but this moment is, I think the 80s is a really interesting time in American culture because like we talked about last week in Talladega Nights, it is starts to be about the commerce, the winning. What mm-hmm. do we have? And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the love is gone. It's like everyone has been pushed to the brink. Like there's no more fun because it is sort of like they're... They've been co-opted. They've been co-opted yeah. by, by, I mean, it's... Like when you see Jack directing kind of the 80s type of porn that he does after Mark Wahlberg leaves, it's like tackier. You know, like the look is getting more cartoonish. The breasts are getting bigger. It's gimmickier and it doesn't feel like it has passion and, the, and it's getting a lot more violent. I mean, that this film has like this whole kind of argument under the scenes about like violence in movies. You know, that Mark Wahlberg, even from the beginning, kind of positions himself as a guy who's like, it's not sexy to be slapping people. Tell me. 
Well, I don't like seeing women treated that way. This guy who plays Johnny Wad, it's always about slapping some girl around or whatever. It's not right. It's not cool. It's just not sexy. I mean, it's not sexy like it should be, Jack. Th this guy's more of like a James Bond type character. You know, he's, he's classy. He's a world travel guy. But then he's also not holding true to like what he thinks he believes. He's like getting more and more aggressive the more coked out he gets. And then like his his little knockoff is like literally holding guns to girls' heads. Well, he's and it doing just feels it in like real life too. Off base. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, like, but I I also think that this is, you know, talking about you know pornography in general. That Rashida Jones documentary that she did about the the porn industry. You know, this is where porn is has really gotten in, you know, grown more and more into. Like, you know, it used to be films, then it became videotapes, then it became DVDs, and now it's, you know, clips. And these clips are about humiliation. These clips are, are not all... I'm, I know I'm making, like, a big generalization, but I like... I mean, I think what you're saying is, like, when this movie starts, it's starting at a moment when people have kind of an optimism that maybe porn will be part of the mainstream... Yeah, because yeah, like getting Deep reviewed Throat's playing in, in mainstream theaters, it's getting and it's getting reviewed. reviewed. They're getting real yeah. reviews, and they're getting awards, and they're they're getting legitimized. It's it's yeah. on the up. Yeah, yeah. And even though like the numbers are bigger than I think they've ever been because of the internet, the tone it sounds like has gotten like a lot more like pushing into transgressive. Like this isn't like family affair. This is like about shame. Like that it well, was it's humiliation like, yeah. and and power and like. I'm not kink shaming. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that this is a direction that some people are following into. And I was reading well, an article. It's a vibe shift. A vibe. It's shift. a vibe shift. It's a vibe shift that is not indicative of the entire industry, of course, but it's it is definitely a larger and larger subsect of the industry. Well, yeah, and I think you even get a taste of that when like uh, Thomas Jane's Todd Parker like drags everybody to Alfred Molina's house to try to like rip him off. And yeah, like they're listening to Jesse's girl and they're, you know, like rocking out and the guy's like lighting fireworks and everybody's super on edge. But right in the middle of it, you get this kind of like high on crack, you know, the introduction of crack in this film monologue from Alfred Molina, where he's talking about like his new interest in technology. And he's talking about like mixtapes. He's literally talking about the idea of him being excited to take technology into his own hands for the first time. He mm -hmm. can mix things in his order. You know, it's kind of this hint of where we really hit in like the 2000s, the like me decade, the I decade of like my iPhone, my I this, my space. I think that he's like almost presaging that by talking about how much he wants his music the way that he wants it. Dude, I love this. Like, I, I make these little uh, mixtapes together. You know, I put all my favorite songs together. Hey, Charles, what kind is this? Number, uh, number 11. Yeah, I love it. You know, when you buy a tape or something or, or an album, you, know, you put it on and, it, and the songs are like the fans put them in some fucking order. Like, they want you to listen to it in that order. You know, I, I hate that. I fucking hate that. I don't like to be told what to listen to, when to listen to it, or anything. And that sequence is really interesting, too, because you have this character, the Thomas Jane character, um, where... They're already doing something so stupid, right? Like, so, like, ill thought out. And it looks like it works. And then Thomas Jane is like, and I want more. And that is also this world that we're living in. And I think we continue this path. It's like, and I want more. And I give me, and that, now let's go in your room and get this safe. And it's, it, there isn't, there's no end. It's not like you just pulled off a great 
terrible con uh, that is going to eventually bite you in the ass regardless. But then you actually make it 10 times worse by threatening and not letting your other people in on what's going on. I mean, that sequence obviously is a legendary sequence. And I actually really love that sequence. If you think about it, paired up with the scene from Promising Young Woman, like those two Alfred Molina performances together, <laughs> like when she finds him in that room and his mm-hmm. kind of world is corrupted. And I know it's not the same character, it just happens to be the same actor, but I do love these moments of these people living in this, like this, like that one is like, I see the future. And this one is like, I'm, you know, like you can, you can see them also as bookends of this, this character who is rising and falling. No, it's true. Uh, No, exactly. And what I find kind of thematically pointed about that scene, too, is like this dynamic we've had between uh, Dirk Diggler and Reed, this whole movie. You know, these two kind of like bros having a relationship, I think, really similar to like the Ricky Bobby one in Talladega Nights. Like two kind of guys egging each other on with like, how much do you lift? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, John C. Oh, Amy, Amy, Amy. He's like, you're missing it. You're missing it because I wanted to bring this up. That's not Talladega Nights. That's Step Brothers. That is... (laughs) <laughs> One million percent stepbrothers. When you watch that movie, I was like, holy shit. Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley are doing stuff. You can take every <laughs> one of those scenes. How to do a dive, yeah. taste this margarita, like the <laughs> the singing of the song, like every beat for beat, that is stepbrothers. Like yeah. I was like, I was freaking out last <laughs> night because we were talking about stepbrothers before we were gonna do Talladega. And in watching those two. I was like, oh, ah, like it, it's so like you can't tell me. I would love to ask McKay about this. Like if because putting John C. like he's doing it. He is. I mean, it is magic tricks. They are they are they are both of the same ilk. Like we're going to make this movie. We're going to do these things. We're going to sell our songs. I I am like. I couldn't help <laughs> but go like this is the prequel to Step Brothers. No, that's true. And actually, Paul Thomas Anderson shot some of it in the same way because, like, yeah, he was making uh, John C. Riley do some improv in this movie. Like, you know that scene where they're trying to get the tapes out of the out of the, oh, out yeah, of the yeah, recording yeah. guy. Like, all Paul that Thomas Anderson. That guy is amazing, by the way. So good. All oh. Paul Thomas Anderson gave John C. Riley is like, you want to get your tapes out of this guy? He doesn't want to give them to you. Go. And this is what he comes up with. Wait, 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 wait. We can't pay the price of the demo tapes. Unless we take the demo tapes to the record company and get paid. Hello, exactly. That's not an MP. That's a YP. Your problem. Come up with the money and I'll give you the tapes. That's it. Okay. All right, now you're talking above my head, all right? I don't know this industry jargon, YP, MP, whatever, okay? All I know is that I cannot get a record contract. We cannot get a record contract unless I take these tapes. And granted, the, the tapes themselves are your... Are your, are, are your you own them, okay? But the magic that is on the tapes, that fucking heart and soul that we put into those tapes, that is ours. And you don't own that. Now I need to take that magic and get it to the, to the record company. Okay, and they're waiting for us. We're supposed to be there a half hour ago. We look like assholes right now, man. But where I wanted to go with that is like, what is this number one thing these two guys are always pretending to do? You know, especially Mark Wahlberg. The whole movie, Mark Wahlberg keeps doing this one thing. He looks in the mirror. He does a couple karate chops. He's like, I am he the loves action Bruce Lee. master. He loves Bruce Lee. Bruce the Lee is, all, yeah. is over his wall more than pretty women in cars. And yeah. like, like that's what his wall is. But his wall is predominantly Bruce Lee. He wants to be Bruce Lee. He wants he does his bedroom like Bruce Lee. But he wants to be this like action figure karate guy. You know, when he and... 
uh, John C. Reilly get the clout to start like making their films the way they want to make them. They're like, we want to be the action guys. Their whole shtick is being these cool action heroes. Finally, in the movie, they're in a scene during Jesse's Girl where actual action is about to happen. And they're like, oh my God, we have to run. We are not heroes. Well, that's the moment, right? Their bluff of their whole identity, this whole film. But then at the end, he's like doing karate shots again. He's like, I'm a karate guy. He doesn't but quite learn, behind, but it's But there. behind camera, like to me, that was the difference. It was like, I am not, I am an actor in a movie and behind that I can be Bruce Lee. I am not Bruce Lee in life. And he has like these two moments back to back, which are, you know, trying to get, or closely back to back, trying to get the tapes. Uh, then he gets beat up in the parking lot, you know, uh, mm-hmm. just beat down. And then, and oh, then and we it's see so him. awful because it goes full circle. Like, you know, yeah. we meet him at the beginning of the movie being like, you know, do you want five or 10? You know, like, yeah, I know. Just and then he gets, he's doing it again for $10. It's like he went all over the world. Yeah. The guy's like, he can only you sell got it for $5 $10? raise? Uh, well, oh. I'll say this, but I'll also say this. The other scene that's intercut with is the roller girl scene. And again, mm-hmm. talking about this idea of not letting people into your sphere, they both go out into the real world. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work. They're both roller not girl going into themselves and they well yeah. they but they go into the real world yeah. and it upsets the balance. The real world, the real people, the terrible people that are out there that even that aren't looking out for them, that aren't taking care of them, like they are not capable to be out there. They are kids that are alone. And you're seeing that juxtaposition of these two people in the real world doing something that would have been safer in the world that they're in, and they both retreat. Well, yeah. I mean, is that guy who gets in the limousine with Roller Girl the same guy who does like the BJ face at her in the very beginning when she like, I, runs I out of the classroom and doesn't take her test? So I'm going to tell you one thing. I know Quentin Tarantino has his one issue with this movie being that Paul Damiano uh, was a better filmmaker than uh, than um, Burt Reynolds' character. My issue is that guy is not fucking in uh, a college frat. That guy looks like. <laughs> that guy looks old to me. That guy looks like a 30-year-old. Like, I thought that that was an interesting and weird casting choice. I don't know if it was, maybe it was the same guy. I couldn't quite, t- it's not exactly the same. It's like, not that much time has passed tell. for it to be like that different. But it looked like a high school production where you're like throwing on a business suit and going, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I'm Stanley Kowalski. I'm not Stanley Kowalski. I'm, a, you know, I'm death of a salesman, you know, or something like that. It's like, there's something about it. It's like, this just felt weird. Uh, I love that scene. But yeah. that casting choice is bizarre. I mean, it's it's wild how much Paul Thomas Anderson kind of pushes the tone of it with the, that solemn bell that's just like ringing and ringing and ringing in the background for what feels like five minutes. I mean, that sequence begins with like, the truck pulling up when uh, Mark Wahlberg's kind of loitering underneath a, basically a big painting of Jesus. There's like a church right across the, st- the street from it. And then it's just like tolling bells and solemn and solemn. And finally, we get something from Roller Girl that we haven't gotten this whole film, which is, you know, she's been kind of like easy and breezy. The thing about Roller Girl that I find kind of compelling is how she doesn't really seem to form close friendships with almost anybody either. You know, She's kind. She becomes close with Julia Moore in that one scene, but she's kind of a figure who I think just like keeps moving. Like you don't see her get particularly attached to anybody, and you watch her just sort of be like calm, level-headed, trying to just make everything breezy, just like agreeing, going along. Okay, Jack, whatever you need, Jack. You want me right. to do this, Jack? Okay, Jack. And in this scene, 
she finally snaps. You like finally get to see like what has she been shoving down inside of herself this whole time. And like all of her rage just comes out when she's like, you can't touch me. I'm glad that he, I'm glad for two things. Like A, I'm glad that Paul Thomas Anderson like gives her this scene because I think she needs it. And I'm glad that she like commits to doing it like messy lipstick looking kind of rageful, like Mm -hmm. really just like raw. I think the first time I watched this movie and walked away, like that was actually the scene I remembered more than anything was like her moment there. But I'm also glad that there's like not even the slightest hint in this movie that like Paul Thomas Anderson wants the script to heal everything by like making her have a romance with Dirk Diggler or something. There's no kind of like linking them up or like, will they heal each other with love? It doesn't condescend to us in that way. And I'm really grateful for that because I feel like that would be like the cheap way to kind of reconcile. Well, I mean, is there something really interesting about this? Because the real love story in this whole movie, I think, is Melora Walters and Don Cheadle's character, right? That's that really is the only relationship that we fully track, like they support each other. They're there for each other. She's gotten his back. He gets her back. They actually connect on something. It seems to me like these characters don't even have the ability to have relationships. And I think that there's something interesting about that. Like, I'm going to go out on a very big limb and I don't know if I fully believe this, but I'm talking to you about it. So let's see. Um, This idea that like, You know, when you're in this level of using your body as part of, you know, uh, the the job that you do, the last thing that you want to do is then, you know, do it again off camera. Like, I think that every like there's I think there's a reason why we're not really seeing relationships here or these love connections here. It's more about the love of the family. It's more about maybe it's they don't want to just crisscross family stuff. I I just. I just am, yeah. I am kind like, of I mean, curious about the out. lack of relation. Yes. Yeah. Like oh, did he? Okay. A, well, he cut a little bit out of like, you know, we see like Becky marry Jerome. Mm. We, yes. And their we wedding just being so dismal at that club. Like, yeah. you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman shoving the cake in his mouth. And I don't know how their wedding would have been after that. I don't know what we missed from their marriage that he cut out. But I, I, I feel for Becky, like we don't get to know Becky that well compared to anybody in this film. So like the one thing we get is really just her in that, in the club scene I was talking about earlier, the kind of second club scene where nobody's yeah. really connecting, you see her just try to insist on being seen as a lady, you know, introducing herself in that kind of lady well, yes. voice, Becky Barnett. And then they can't hear her and she has to yell her name and she like loses a little bit of her composure. And that's all we really get, I think, into her character. Well, and I think that she wants enough. the illusion. Like, I love that. Like, yeah. she, like, she, like, it's interesting because she's chasing, I think, the fantasy romance like i don't know if this guy is good or bad or whatever like yeah, but he positions himself right you know and i, I yeah. don't think we even need to know but where it's interesting because don Cheadle's character is somebody who's trying to find himself and the first person that he feels comfortable enough to take that wig off of you know when he is in his uh whatever pharaoh yeah. era you know like he takes it off and he can actually be himself. Yeah, and she pokes it and they have kind of a joke together i mean yeah. do you think when he's dressing like a cowboy this is this is Paul Thomas Anderson nodding at like Midnight Cowboy in the end of this era when everybody was dressing like a cowboy. Remember that being oh, such a yeah. thing of that I film? Mean, yeah. Yeah. I felt like to me, it felt like he was just he was trying to find himself through whatever was popular. And and I think where we really because we don't actually even ever see him in any porn scenes. Mm-mm. You know, we hear from the from the stereo salesman. He says, oh, I thought that your job would actually bring in some hot ladies here, and I was right, but, you know, you got to cut it out with the cowboy shit. I think that, like, 
he's an interesting character. We said that he's innocent. Uh, and I do think that, like, he's just trying to find who he is. I think that Buck Swope is one of those personalities. His true love actually is, and this is the confusing thing about the movie. Like, the TK-421, obviously a reference to George Lucas, and uh, that's what they say, you know, uh, TK-421, to your post, TK-421, that's from Star Wars. You know, so, like, you when you hear TK-421... Uh, that many times, I'm like, does he actually know what he's fucking talking about? Like, he needs to do this thing to stereos. But as the movie goes yeah, you on, see I'm like, him I stumbled think... just enough. You're like, is he bullshitting me? Is he just being a but great salesman? But at the salesman? end, he is seemingly like, I need to do these stereo repairs. Like, it's so. Like, I think that he finally finds himself comfortable at the end of who he is or what he wants to be, or at least is accepted for, you know, and maybe like he's getting rewarded for staying true to himself. I, there's mm-hmm. something really interesting about that character and that journey of that character because I think he's the only one that is willing to shed and see what's next, where all these other characters kind of want to stay in this world. And he is the one that has the most success outside of this world. Uh, I mean, John not... really gets to be a magician, but yes, he's a not yes. magician. Uh, by the way, I love that too. Yeah. Uh, but again, he is still bringing part of his world yeah. into his act right it's well, it's the, let me ask you the important question yeah. though like what do you think of don Cheadle's choice of donuts <laughs> i mean what is your donut man when i was a kid i would say jelly i always was a fan of oh, jelly yeah. uh now i'm i'm a very like i like a a, a glazed uh, i like a, a a custard filled i don't really go for donuts that often what is what's your choice there well if it's a good raspberry by which mm. I mean like actual raspberry with some seeds mm-hmm. and not like the toxic yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. the toxic the, gel. Yeah. That's a winner. That's a winner. Well, there's a I place out like here. I kind of like a spice crumb and a, co- a coconut. Ooh, though. I I, yeah. I definitely Chocolate would like fashioned. a a cinnamon donut. Like I, I can go I can go across the board. Like I am I am I am uh, like donut agnostic. I don't have one that I go to. Like I want to whatever I'm in the mood for. I will go to. I you know I'll I'll do but the big ones at Voodoo. Guy? Doesn't that feel like a waste of eating a donut just to do a soft No, I like, I, I like, I like a, like a chocolate glazed donut from Dunkin' Donuts is like pretty <laughs> solid for me. I mean, it's like a pretty simple one. I'm obviously Krispy Kreme has kind of perfected that. So I Are like those. Are you more yeast or more cake? Hmm. Well, give me the, you know, LA is a donut place. I grew up in New York, so I was like just Dunkin' Donuts. So that my, my real association with donuts, like here you can go to any local strip mall and get a good donut. Like, a pretty damn good donut like and it's it's surprising and like yes i've been to voodoo donuts and those are very good yeah. uh there's but I a like place... an ordinary donut yeah there's a pair i mean yeah. like my corner has like a matcha old-fashioned Ooh, interesting. Donut. i've had a lot of these i've had a lot of these like uh, mo- uh mochi donuts uh that are like uh they're very good too i haven't tried those I mean, look, if you like cake you're gonna like donuts yeah. I, I will I guess, say actually like yeah in that scene the one quibble i have with it is like the one antediluvian thing in this movie is that, like, I guess, well, I guess we didn't have like maybe the technology to take away the fact that they're across the street from a ninety-nine cent store in the valley. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're like, oh, oh, ah, like, I, I wonder if he watches that and he kicks himself, or if like Paul Thomas Anderson is like, someday I will George Lucas this movie just to get rid of that ninety-nine cent store. Why was it not there before that? No, the ninety-nine cent brand, that pink and yellow, that pink and blue yeah. brand. Yeah, no, those are newer. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Um, th- that scene is really interesting because I think you're watching this movie, you're like, oh, he's going to get killed, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, he's going to die, and how unfair it is for him to die. But I think 
he's getting rewarded. Oh, by the way, Raven has told us 99 cent stores opened in 1982. So that could oh. be technically correct. Oh, uh, especially oh maybe for the movie. I'm wrong. Oh, yeah. dear. We are so afraid to shed our skin, to try different things. And, you know, they could come in different ways. You know, uh, it doesn't have to be in every aspect of your life, but it's scary to change. And I think that, like, this character embraces change and is willing to change. And, yes, he's trying to fit in, too. But I think what he finds is he finally fits in when he is himself or at least is accepted and and you and you and you and you follow this relationship through the birth of their child and you see the child like in the pool like and he's still in the world like he still has these connections but he is fully his own person and it's it's one of the most interesting i think one of the most interesting stories in the entire film at the end of the day like he has he has gone through and i also think that that ending of the movie also shows like who knows who you're talking to? Like everyone is kind of doing their own thing. Like what is their backstory? What did they do? They, this is only a handful of years in these people's lives. And, you know, just because they have this one part of their life that was like this, it doesn't mean their whole life is that. It doesn't mean they're going to end in tragedy. And this well, movie, yeah. you know, this I mean, movie does. I mean, that whole last yeah. tracking shot in the house, like I still don't feel like Amber's in a good place, even though I'm glad she's a director. You know, we've watched I her love, staring at I herself think- in the mirror and it's like. He calls her the foxiest bitch in the whole wide world, but the camera doesn't move again. It just kind of stays with her staring in the mirror, looking, I don't know, tired, conflicted. It just feels like there's a lot in her face. And then we cut to like Mark looking at himself in the mirror. But what you see in the scene before that or two scenes before that is her at her most clean, sober and happiest when she's directing the commercial. Yeah. Like when she, when you see her there, it's like, whoa, who is this person? Like she just, and when she shows off the documentary, you know, there's elements like you see the passion there. And I think that what, what we're seeing in a weird way (laughs) is, you know, I think a lot has been made about this final scene. The first and final scene are parallel. We pretty much see all the same characters. William H. Macy represented it in a painting in the background. Uh, We move through and there's a word that like Burt Reynolds says, which I love, which is like, just want to keep it mellow. Just want to keep it mellow, right? And that's the difference. Like, mellow now, it was yeah. party before, but they still are doing, a lot of people in that world are still doing the same thing. I don't know if Julianne yeah. Moore still wants to be doing porn. Uh, I think that Mark Wahlberg does. Uh, you know, I, I think that he feels back in this world, uh, you know, for how long, who knows, but like she's found her joy somewhere else, but she can't get out, you know, yet or, or you know, yeah. and Roller Girl is kind of atrophied too. you know, Roller Girl is just a kid, still a kid. She went back to school, but did she really go back to school? She's with the way we view her in her last moment is like, clean, move that stuff from one side of your room to the other side of the room. It's like she's he's treating her like a kid. It, like So there is like this idea that the world will still move and and the family will always accept you back. Um but, but so yeah. even so, like Paul Thomas Anderson, like he wanted to make sure that he didn't lie and say that these people changed their lives. I mean, like his right. quote for what he wanted to do is he said, you know, usually what you see in a movie is that the characters become smarter at the end of the movie somehow. Right. And that doesn't happen here. Everybody is the same. And maybe if there's a change, it's like one degree. But normally in a movie, you see a 90 degree change. To me, they're all pretty much the exact same people as they were at the beginning of the movie. Which I think is sort of true, but also there's so much of a change in Mark Wahlberg's performance. Like Mm -hmm. the smile he is capable of giving at the beginning, that like guileless little kid smile, 
He doesn't have that anymore. There's like a heaviness no, he to the way his, he plays. I mean, he, like, he is broken. And, yeah. and he has that same look that Julianne Moore has. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, he, they, an they are inside of him. And look, the that you know, dead eyed stare when he's in the Jesse's girl scene like that. What is it? It's like 40 seconds. I was where watching he's just that staring off and like I, you don't know what's even going on in his head. But it's like hard for him to think. I mean, you compare that guy to like the animated teenager we met at the beginning of the oh, film. Yeah. Like he's been gutted. He might not be much smarter, but he's some he's shifted. Well, this is this is the thing. I, I will say one thing about that sequence. I don't know if that sequence was shot in that way that he knew that. I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson kept that camera on him without letting him know. Yeah. And where he had no lines and just boom. No, because, that's true. That's exactly it. Yo, it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Because it, it like, really they filmed is. filmed that scene for three days. Like he sat, Mark Wahlberg sat on that couch for three days with people like, not only with the fireworks actually happening. Yeah. But like. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was walking around behind him with like two by fours and just like cracking them together like at random times to make him jump. So yeah, that was like just the camera watching him and then like Paul Thomas Anderson and the editor knowing like, wow, I don't even know exactly what we will say this means, but it means something. Well, because you even see like John C. Riley like lean in and talk, but he's muted. Like they cut his dialogue. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, but I want to talk about this one thing about the the ending and the, this the very ending, which is the dick, right? Like mm-hmm. when that's out, and it, you know it, it's the it's the Jaws reveal, right? Like we've been hearing about it, we've been seeing people's reaction to it. We understand what is this thing? Like what is this thing? And I think that the framing of that sequence is really interesting because his head is cut off, right? And it's really just torso and penis. Uh, and it's out and it's flaccid or, I mean, uh, I'm assuming it's flaccid, uh, you know, whatever. we can get into the specifics of that, but it's, it's, it's not hard. Uh, and he's standing there and the monologue is like, your star, your star. And I think there's something really interesting about like this idea of chasing the one thing that you're good at, like focusing on that one thing. Because that movie is like, it's not like I'm a star. His penis is a star. Like that, like every bit of success is because of that penis. And I think that's such an interesting, the way he frames it, the way it looks, saying, I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. That, like, it's, I don't think it's like saying like he's, he's an idiot. I mean, it's but almost that's like, like the penis talking to itself, like in the Pam and Tommy show. Like, I mean, there, but there, there is this idea that like, that's all he is. Like he, and, and there's a recognition, like the fact that he takes it out to look at himself in the mirror and say that 
it's not him looking eye to eye because he's doing that amazing scene. You actually, it's mm-hmm. probably some of his best acting, not Mark Wahlberg, but the character of Dirk Diggler doing oh, yeah. that scene. You're like, whoa, he's doing it. But this moment at the yeah. end. I mean, let's listen to that, actually, because it's like it's great. And it feels like a commentary on on him and everything. Yeah. On everything that's happened in this movie so far. I've been around this block twice now. I'm looking for something. A clue. I've been looking for clues and something led me back here. Yep. So here I am. Could have been me the one that was at Ringo's place when the shit went down. Hey. I know how it is. I've been there. We've all done bad things. We've all had those guilty feelings in our heart. You want to take your brain out of your head and wash it and scrub it and make it clean? Oh no. But I'm gonna help you settle this. No, I mean, what I mean, what do you think about it? Because I, I think that that framing is incredibly intentional. I mean, I do too. Yeah, I do too. I I I appreciate it just as also like kind of like the Hitchcockian reveal. Like I've been talking about this thing the whole time. I have to show you what it is. But it's. I don't, it's, it's such a bittersweet moment, you know, to like, to be like, we've watched this person this whole time. We've like studied his face. We've studied his emotions. We've like enjoyed his energy and his ideas, even when they're dumb, even when they're delusional. And then finally, like, well, I guess here it is. Here's what really matters is depressing. And I love that he took, you know, a famous scene from a raging bull and he made it his own, like, you know, because that's so much of a nod. I mean, if you remember that scene from when you were watching Raging Bull, like, here it is. Yeah. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. It was you, Charlie. How you doing, Jake? Everything all right? Yeah. Ready? You got about five minutes. Okay. Need anything? Nah. You sure? I'm sure. Go get him, champ. I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss. What I do love about these like kind of 90s magpie directors like Paul Thomas Anderson and, and, Tar- and Tarantino is when they borrow from things they love, but they really do make it their own. When it's not just like a nod, like, oh, you've seen this. When they're like, how can I put my own stamp on it? And I think he does that so well here. Well, yeah. And, you know, I guess what I'm thinking about in this end is it was all for this dick. This, in the way that you see it at the end, it's kind of lifeless. And yes, it's giant, but it's like all of this for that. Like, this is what it's all about. That, that, like you wrecked your life. You did all this stuff. You, you almost died because of this dick. But at least he's alive. I mean, like, this is sure, based sure. on a short... But, but this that, is based on a short film that he made, that Paul right. Thomas Anderson made in the 80s. And in that one, he does die. Like, this is well, the ending but that's where, John like... Holmes. Where, this is the ending where, like, his version of Reed finds him dead. Oh, my God. Dirk. Oh, Reed. You gotta do scene. Dirk. Wake up. Dirk. 
Okay, read, read, read. That's enough, baby. No, no, read, please, darling. Has anyone called an ambulance? Please, please read. Toby, stop it. No, he's gone. He's gone, Reed. He's gone. Please, baby. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Reed, it's all right. It's all right. Let him go. Let him go. Let him go. Please, let him go. Oh, Dirk. Stephen Samuel Adams died of a drug overdose on July 17th. 1981. And, but I mean, like, just like that's John Holmes. Like John Holmes is very, I think, uh, associated with the Dirk Diggler character. While it's not a, and you know, even though in uh, here he's like his movies are too violent. Yeah, I, but I think that there is something about like this. There is no rosy end. I think that that's what's interesting is like he gets back into the fold, and it may work, and it may be fine, but it's a moment there. It's not like it's not like a. We've seen the capable moments of this, you know, like I'm back, I'm here. But him and Julianne Moore are like, okay, time to make the donuts, you know, uh, oh, like no, that I'm idea. It's like we got to go back into the mind. Like, Julianne Moore has already shown where she's truly happy. And his concession is if I want a family, if I want to be safe, I got to fuck. I got to put out my dick and do this thing. I don't want, like, he isn't like, it's not like when he's out of there, he wants to do porn anymore. He wants to make music. He wants to do all this other stuff. Like, you know, he's not, but he, his concession for a family. He's bad at music. He's bad at music and delusional music. But he he got a dick. I mean, but like, I guess what I'm saying is like his concession to be safe and to save himself is this. Well, then maybe the happy ending of the Dirk Diggler story is not Dirk Diggler, but it's Marky Mark. That Marky Mark has basically this trajectory. Like, he is a guy who is famous in the 90s for being, like, the underwear guy. Being the mm-hmm. guy who's, like, in commercials directed by Herberts, where he's got his underwear out, and he's talking about his dick. Like, well, like, here's one. Save the strange behavior for the kids with doughty drawers. I drop mines for the cause. I gotta wear these during my shows, because if I just wear regular briefs, they... They get stretched out. I've had lipstick stains on my underwear a few times. My brother Donnie, he's always got clean underwear. But uh, he always tries to steal my Calvin. <laughs> my mother still thinks I'm a virgin, I think. <clears throat> Yo, Calvin Klein is definitely in the house. He knows that. That's my man. And so, yeah, there. I mean, that makes him perfect casting. You're like, here's a handsome guy, lots of muscles. We like to stare at him. He's comfortable with his body. He makes, I think, a perfect Dirk Diggler, even though nobody has that much faith in them as an actor, even though like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's first choice was Leonardo DiCaprio. Marky Mark is just perfect for this. I mean, I can't way I better, can, way, perfect, way perfect, better. Perfect, perfect, perfect. perfect. I, it's so funny, well, though. He's I, making I, Titanic, so he can't do it. But uh, like, by the way, what I did last night, I when I were watching this movie, I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I stopped right as the credits started to roll and I put on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know why I wanted to like watch. And I, like, I was like, I'm just watching for a couple minutes and I watch it for uh like 40 minutes much too why why should have been in bed but but like it's a really interesting movie i was like oh do they have like what are the similarities here i just was kind of going back and forth between them for a second i'm gonna say something that i hope uh, it doesn't come off too bad but i think there's too much going on behind the eyes of leonardo dicaprio to make that character work like, I think it's a different movie with DiCaprio. Not a bad movie, but there's an innocence that Mark Wahlberg has and is able to possess that I never really have fully seen in DiCaprio. DiCaprio seems slyer. He seems smarter. He seems suaver. He seems like, 
I love DiCaprio. I think his performances are great. It's just not that innocent as much. And the same no, thing with he doesn't other... look like just some schmo from Torrance. And Marky no, he Mark doesn't. looks like a, the the greatest He's... schmo you could have met in Torrance. He looks, and there's something about Marky Mark that, in a way, looks like every like. I don't know. Like again, I think that like all casting works out for the best. You know, I I think that you know. The idea that like Sam Jackson didn't even want to read the script for this. He was offered the role of Buck Swope. I think that that's great. Cheadle is so emotionally mm-hmm. vulnerable. I don't think you would see that same emotional vulnerability from Sam Jackson. I think he's capable of being an amazing actor. It's just different. Marissa Tomei as Amber Waves. I could see that. Yeah, I think that sure. would be actually really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I could see, uh, you know, Jack Black as Scotty J. Uh, that you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is so kind so of much perfect. More pathetic about him. Yes, he does. yeah. But I think that like you know, like a different version, like a younger Jack Black. You know, um, it, there yeah. are some I mean, like really the Jack yeah. Black in that movie. What was it? Where he's like obsessed with who's the handsome guy who's in Sonic the Hedgehog? Uh, James uh, Marsden. Yeah, yeah. There's that movie where like Jack Black is like obsessed with James Marsden in that same kind of dynamic. That guy could work, but Philip Seymour Hoffman is. Perfect. Dressing like a little kid, wearing stuff that's too big for him, like never mm-hmm. closing his mouth the whole movie. He's, I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. And, but I think this movie does for Mark Wahlberg, like what Dirk Diggler wanted to happen for him. You know, it turns him into an actor. It's such a perfect casting for him that he becomes an actor out of this when nobody was expecting him to become an actor. Like he gets everything that Dirk wants when Dirk gives that speech after he gets his first award show. Wow. I don't know what to say. I guess, well, I guess the only thing I can say is I'll promise to keep rocking and rolling and making better films. You know, it seems we make these movies, and sometimes, you know, they're considered filthy or something by some people. But I don't think that's true. These movies we make, they can be better. They can help. They really can. I mean that. We can always do better. I'm going to keep trying if you guys keep trying. Let's keep rocking and rolling, man. And he achieves it. And I mean, there's been some kind of fuzz back and forth. Like a few years ago, Mark Wahlberg was at like this religious convention with a bunch Mm -hmm. of young people. And he's talking to a cardinal. And they're talking about this idea of like forgiveness. And Wahlberg says, in front of all of these kids, he says, you know, I always just hope that God is a movie fan and also forgiving because I've made some poor choices in my past. And they ask, you know, well, have you ever like prayed for forgiveness for any of your movies? And he says, Boogie Nights is up there at the top of the list. And like, it gets like a positive reaction in the room. And then later on, he's like, I was kidding. I love that movie. I love that movie. And I don't know exactly what's true uh, from there, but you can't yeah. deny that Boogie Nights was massive for him. I don't think we'd have I think Mark when Wahlberg he's up on that stage, you should maybe talk about some of the hate crimes that he did in the 80s, but you know. Different. He does. He actually does. Okay. I mean, but he does in that way of like, and now I've repented. Thank you. And all my trials made me a better person. I yeah, watched so... the whole thing looking for this quote. <laughs> uh, but look, this movie is a, this movie is a monster. Uh, you said like Lawrence of Arabia of the Valley. And I think it has that scope. It has that, uh, this ability to take no-name actors and make them the staples of indie cinema and and now truly mainstream cinema as well. Like they all are these amazing performers. I think that I think also what P.T. Anderson does all the time, all the time, and it's not really always like regarded, but it's is his humor is great. I think a lot of people go, oh, he's back. The 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 master is 
you know, uh, the mastery's finally hitting those funny jokes again. It's like, he's, he's always hitting jokes. It's a matter of, like, how subtle they are or how, like, or what the tenor... I think he's always getting these performances. They, they, you know, even if you... And there will be blood. Like, Daniel Day-Lewis gives... Like, there are, like, funny characterizations. Like, it's like, he's so good at these micro moments that I think they are comedy moments that are just embedded so deeply in the character that they're not played for a laugh. Like they, it's a character study, which it's like that person is a funny person, but it's like, I think it's hard to disassociate, but he always, I think, I think the reason why he's such an amazing director is no matter what the subject, he can bring a lightness to it, a connection to it. And and he's done some very heavy movies and some very, uh, I mean, I love his career across the board, but I, I just think it's like, I think people go, oh yeah, Boogie Nights is so fun and this and this. I think all of his movies share the same DNA here. This is just poppy and big and the soundtrack is amazing. I, I love Magnolia so much as well. Like I, I may even love Magnolia more. Uh, but I will say this. Um, if you're a fan of this movie, do whatever you can do to get the Criterion version of this film where they still have the director's commentary track. That is one thing I know that P.T. Anderson regrets doing. He recorded a director's commentary track where he went around uh, to different people's houses and watched the movie with them with a recorder. And the the things that you get, the it's so revealing. It's so great. Uh, Mark Wahlberg talks about breaking his dick. Uh, there are some really insane behind-the-scenes stories that I don't think he ever would have wanted you to know. And I think he regrets even letting you into this process as much as he does there. So it's a real rare, fun director's commentary find if you're a fan of that kind of stuff. I mean, Amy, this is, I think, viewed as the quintessential Paul Thomas Anderson film. I think a lot of people wanted to wanted Licorice Pizza to be like, oh, we're back. We're going to be back here. And, and maybe some of that energy uh, makes you have a hard time looking at it as a film not connected to Boogie Nights. But uh, but. Uh, what well, were, it's funny what, seeing how much he loves motifs like people's cars running out of gas and mm. salesmen trying to convince you to buy things. He's really got his touchstones. No. And I mean, look, and, and again, like what he can do with such a short period of time with these amazing characters, uh, you know, Bradley Cooper and in Licorice Pizza is is phenomenal. I mean, truly just like just chews up scenery in that that, you know, it's so it's so great. Uh, but OK, but go ahead. But go ahead. What, what were the reviews when this comes comes out? They were raves. Everybody loved this movie. It was a really hard time to find anybody who didn't love this movie. Uh, finally, I dug up one paragraph from um, the reviewer, a flick philosopher, and she did have a fair point that I wanted to say. She wrote, the, the best thing and the most annoying thing about Boogie Nights is that finally here is a movie about a penis that admits it's about a penis instead of disguising it as a car or a gun. And yet, while the women characters are frequently and casually fully nude, the men never are. The movie's mounting suspense comes from making us wonder when we are going to get a gander at this thing that's making every other characters go wide. And when Dirk Diggler, quite pointedly fully dressed, quite finally unzips for us, we all know it's a fake, a prosthetic, while naturally the women are actually revealing their own bodies. I guess mm. I should be surprised that an R-rated movie goes the full Monty. You know, Hollywood's unconscious attitude is usually that men need to pr be protected from prying female eyes, but not the other way around. You can tell how large a woman's breasts are while she's dressed, obviously. So what difference does it make if she's naked? 
Men, on the other hand, can keep everything under wraps. So why make them vulnerable and force them to reveal anything ever? Is Boogie Nights offering a pithy commentary on how men and women's bodies are offered for view on the big screen by making Eddie and Dirk's, Eddie slash Dirk's unusual revelation the climax of the film? Or is Boogie Nights just another symptom of that attitude that shields poor, delicate, whittle boys from us big, nasty women? Maybe it's the use of the word whittle that they are all afraid of. You know, it's interesting talking about like the sexuality of this movie, because I find this movie dealing with sex, but I don't find it to be like overly sexual like it, it like it like it's not salacious sex it's like it's it seems work a day like i think one of the hard things to do and we didn't really touch on this is like to portray shooting pornography and and the scenes of pornography uh as as ho-hum as they are you know like i and the guy so was, many cool ways of framing it to show yes. us the movie, to show to go inside the camera, to figure yeah. out how to show us all these things he can't show that us. That zoom into the lens and then the flip version of it. Like, I just think it's like, yes, there are a lot of naked body parts here, but I don't think it's like salacious. I don't feel like, you know, it just seems like this is their job. It would be uh, it, it, like. Well, I respect said, that at least this reviewer presages the current moment, which is yes. now we have a lot of penises. I think we've yes. leveled the playing field a bit on that. So thank you. I, yeah, I, I agree. I, well, who I, would you say started that? Jason Siegel? Thank you. Yeah, Judd App. Let's put in the Judd Apatow kind of I think that there's a lot of penises in Dewey Cox Walk Hard, right? There was that was, I think, a lot of penises there, and that might have been before Sarah Marshall, or in that same zone. The Judd Apatow produced films, a lot of penises. Great. Um thank you. Uh, here's here's what I'll say. Uh just to talk about like the, the sexuality of it too. Like June, my wife, and my wife uh said to me one time when I saw uh when we watched Wonder Woman, like she's not a big superhero fan. Uh, but she really loved Wonder Woman. And she said something that I always think about. She's like, you know, to see this character shot without the male gaze yeah, that's is really interesting. And I believe that this movie, while shooting a lot of women who are naked and a lot of sex scenes, frame it in a way that is is similar like he does a really good job of balancing like it is titillating without being exploitative it is like a thousand percent yeah. you know and it's a it's a, that's a very fine line and i think it's the reason why this movie actually is accepted because i don't think that like while these test audiences might you know have felt dirty in the <laughs> writing it down yeah. on a sheet of paper, I mean, you don't about- <laughs> leave feeling like I just no. saw, like I just watched this erotic thriller for how did this get made? And it's shot with Heather Graham, as a matter of fact, and it's shot so much more salaciously. Of course it is because it's an erotic yeah. thriller. But I mean, the like, Batman movies by Joel Schumacher are shot more salaciously than this yeah. movie. It's just an interesting, like, I, I think to be able to hold that back and be able to fight off people wanting you to make that. And to I think it's a movie about sex but it's not a movie. It's it's a movie about the selling of sex more than it is, you know, or, you know, the art of sex than it is like about like sex scenes. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's, it's I mean, true. even though, yeah, well, that, that scene where she just jumps on Mark Wahlberg, uh, Roller Girl in the beginning is so hilarious. And it's like, but it's so like, again, so innocent. Like, OK, yeah, you want me to go back there and yeah, sure. Great. You know, it's like it's so everyone's so kind of open and tolerant and, and free and, and not puritanical about it. It's true. And I think while we have to give shout outs to this movie and its place in film history, and I'll just kind of lay my cards out. This is, I think, of all of the the PTA films, this is the one that I would most want to go to space. I love Magnolia too. I love Magnolia deeply. I think Boogie Nights 
maybe just because it's more cheerful is more rewatchable to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I there Magnolia is almost so beautiful that it hurts too much. Boogie Nights is just perfection. I think it's just absolutely delightful. I want it on all the time. And I would like to think we're having like our own kind of shift in the culture where like, I did an episode on this ages ago on the canon where we kind of pit Boogie Nights against There'll Be Blood. And overwhelmingly, cineast types were like, the most important film is definitely There'll Be Blood. That's the masterpiece, blah, 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 blah. You know, coming out of that vibe of like, well, it's the film that's like the most dramatic and it's like kind of like um, epically historical. Mm-hmm. And therefore it's got to be the most serious because it looks the most Oscar-y. I right. think Boogie Nights is the better film. And I think like preferring Boogie Nights to There'll Be Blood is kind of the direction I want the Oscars to go in, appreciating these films when we have them as, even if they seem kind of light, even if they seem kind of salacious, you shouldn't have to dress up a film as like the history of ancient America in this country and commerce and capitalism for people to take it seriously. So I'm glad at least that Licorice Pizza is nominated for Best Picture. I would like it to be the front runner, but I think we're going to award the There Will Be Blood of this year, which is Power of the Dog, which, okay, fine. But like, I want to enjoy these movies. I want us to be able to have like a lighter touch. And I really hope we give Paul Thomas Anderson an Oscar at some point because like, well, he's here's really what I wanted to, I, I wanted to, like, I wanted to say this to you though. This is a, cause we were talking about Jordan Peele, uh, a while ago in our first Oscar special that we ever did. And we were talking about, should he get the Oscar now? And you're like, I don't want to give him the Oscar now because I want to see what he does next. I feel like it's next. And I do think that there is not to say that, that, I think Paul Thomas Anderson has an amazing career and his movies are incredibly diverse and they're all award-worthy on different levels. But that energy means that this movie isn't nominated. Like, it doesn't get the award. Like, you can never go backwards, right? You can never go, like... And I I think that there is this idea, and I I do this all the time. I Jordan Peele, but I agree. Okay, so there you go. but But there is something about this where it's like, oh, if this was the movie that he won the Oscar for, like... It is about Hollywood in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, it is about the business of making movies. It's a perfect Oscar movie. It's just interesting. Like like I wouldn't I wouldn't be mad if this was the one that got if this won best picture. Like in oh, it no, was his first all. movie. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, so I feel like if he wins for Licorice Pizza, it'll kind of almost be more of like he a won't. balancing of the score. No. I know, but I'm looking for the upside. All right. Well, but look, the the one thing that I think we can rely on is that there's going to be more and more movies from Paul Thomas Anderson. He's not the guy who's laying down the law going, I'm only making one more movie. You know, uh, you know, he's not doing that. He's just making movies. And one of the things I read about him and, and what I love uh, that he said was like, I just want to write great parts for actors that I love. And I was like, damn, like if that's all he continues to do, then we are lucky because that alchemy of him knowing who he wants and getting these performances, like more of these performances and whether or not it's, you know, I think everyone fell in love with Alana Haim. Uh, I think, you know, uh, people obviously, Cooper Hoffman, uh, Bradley Cooper, like people have said that, that this is the best Bradley Cooper performance. Like, you know, it's like, so God bless. Like if he can every one of his films and Daniel Day Lewis uh, obviously is, you know, right in front and center of all this sort of stuff. Like, yeah, keep on making movies where you showcase actors. I, I will say that the scene that I love in Licorice Pizza so much is the casting director. The casting director scene in Licorice Pizza really is one good. of the best scenes. It is so brilliant. She is unbelievable. And I believe I read she like came in, did that in an hour and left. Like it was like bang, bang, bang. And it's just like, and, but that's him going, 
I know her. I've used her. She's great. Just come in, nail it. And that is what the levels that she does in that is, uh, I, I, I rewound that scene three times when I watch it. I was like, this is un. Like, I, I, I called June into the room. I was like, can you just watch this with me? Like, watch what this woman is doing in this scene. It's so amazing. Well, Amy, our Contender series continues. Let's switch it up a bit. You mentioned it just a second ago. Uh, the, the movie Power of the Dog is uh, something that everyone has been talking about. Uh, you know, I... I really, I really liked it. Now I feel bad about it because I feel like people make fun of it. Um, but, but obviously, this is not the first time that Jane Campion has been uh, nominated and, and gone to this kind of, uh, you know, right to the top, really, in the Oscars. I mean, the f- I think our first real introduction to her was The Piano, a movie I haven't seen. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. But was nominated to us earlier this year when we did a special top three with Melanie Linsky. We should uh, we should do Melanie Linsky proud and properly cover the piano. I love this. I cannot wait to watch the piano because I am a big fan of Power of the Dog. So take a listen to the trailer. She came to a strange land in search of a new life. We can't leave the piano. But there are too few of us here to carry it now. She came to a husband she had never met. And it was time I'm sure she would become affectionate. And discovered a passion that would change her world forever. Holly Hunter, Harvey Keitel, Sam Neill, The Piano. The critics say, so moving and original, it is a triumph. One of the most enchanting love stories ever filmed. Erotic. Mysterious. Exquisite. Jane Campion is one of the most splendid filmmakers around. has no limits. The Piano, from acclaimed director Jane Campion. And you can find this wherever films are streaming. By the way, as an outro, I know Dirk Diggler is the famous name from Boogie Nights, but you gotta be partial to Chest Rockwell. Uh, I want to play a little song that I love uh, from the band Lovage. They have a song called Ladies Love, Chest Rockwell. It is a groove, and if you're looking for a romantic album, I love this one. People want to know what's the secret to Chess Rockwell's ability to pick up all these beautiful women. Is it your good looks? Is it that big bulge in your pants? It could be that fancy car you drive that I lease and change every other year, but you don't need to know that. I say, look, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. My man, Nathaniel Merriweather, you know, little running buddy from Hampton Boy Marlin School, made this thing called music to make love to your old lady by. Barry White used to work. Shoot, even ABBA used to work the way I was doing my thing. But man, you put this on, the hoes just go wild. I'm telling you, music to make love to your old lady. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.